Evolving the Role of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Professionals in 2021. According to a Washington Post article, at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, jobs for diversity, equity, and inclusion professionals plummeted by an estimated 60% in the United States. As companies were bracing for an economic downturn, it was common to make tough decisions on what roles were critical versus non-critical. However, no one could have imagined the shift in corporate views on the importance of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging until the summer of 2020, when social justice protests and global outcries occurred due to the death of George Floyd. It sparked serious conversations on racial inequities in the workplace and society as a whole. Many companies made bold statements to support social justice, but many have fallen short of actual plans. Welcome to the Diversity Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Audra Jenkins, joined by a member of my Ronset Equality, Diversity, Inclusion, Already crew, Demetria Johnson. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Shelton Good, the president and CEO of Icarus Consulting, a veteran-owned consulting firm which specializes in helping organizations create inclusive cultures that leverage diversity and inclusion for a competitive advantage. Forbes has recognized Dr. Good as one of the top 10 DNI trailblazers in the country. He is a business executive with over 20 years of diversity, inclusion, HR, and higher education experience. Dr. Good was a senior DNI executive at the Metropolitan Atlanta Rapid Transit Agency, Oshkosh Corporation, Pennsylvania Power and Light, Georgia Power, Southern Company, and Alabama Power. Dr. Good is also the author of the best-selling book, Diversity Managers, Angels of Mercy, or Barbarians at the Gate. He received his bachelor's degree from Southwest Texas State University, his master's degree in human resource management from Troy University, and his doctorate in public administration from the University of Alabama. Dr. Shelton Good speaks nationally on various public administration, human resource, ethics, and diversity topics. Welcome, Shelton. Thank you, Audra. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm looking forward to today's discussion. Shelton, you know, um, we're just so excited to have you today and just really do appreciate your time. We know you're a very busy man and we're going to jump right on in. So, Shelton, you and I have talked before about how there have been more DEI jobs in the past 10 months than we've seen in the past 10 years. Do you think that trend will continue in 2021? Audra, I don't know if that uh, that trend can be can be sustained. I do believe that there is a need for companies to have um, competent DNI leaders who go to who uh, come to work every day, go home at the end of the day, wake up the next day, thinking how they can make their company a little bit more diverse, a little bit more equitable, and a little bit more inclusive. The, whether the trend is sustained or not. I'm not sure that's the issue. I, as you know, continue to be concerned about whether or not companies who have these strong, dedicated, competent leaders fully leverage them for the benefit of the organization. Too often, I hear uh, frustration from chief diversity officers that their voice is not really heard, and that, and, and I think that has resulted in some of the turnover that we've seen, which is why you have seen this uptick. In what seems like a chief diversity officer job, you know, a high profile one being filled every week. That's so impactful, Shelton. Wow, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I, you know, I question the thought process that this should be something that's carried on one person's shoulders, you know, for sure. You know, for the first time, you know, in 2020, you know, many companies had their courageous conversations about their underrepresented groups and their employees, what they face day to day. You know, we know that true belonging cannot exist without diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I just feel as though when someone goes in and tries to solve the problem with one hire without dealing with the root cause, I think that's where there's a huge misstep. 
So what would you advise a client who wants to hire only one diversity, equity, inclusion professional and assume that one person is going to fix their internal dysfunction? Yeah, so we both know from, you know, I've been a, a CDO leader, a chief diversity officer, a diversity HR leader, and I was fortunate. I was fortunate. Maybe it was the, the context of the time. I always had the, the resources that I need to include a communications person that was embedded um, on my team, and I paid you know upwards of sixty percent of their salary. When I tell current leaders that start, that are leading their diversity and inclusion efforts in corporations today, when I tell them about the resources I had, they 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 look at me like, wow, you know, if I could only have you know half of that. What I would tell, and, and what I do tell the my clients who who if they don't have a diversity leader, or sometimes even when they do. If you're going to have a one deep person with with hopefully some administrative support, you can't expect that person to wave a magic wand and address you know some of the key issues of the organization. That means that the entire leadership team has to take ownership. As in fact, what when we go into our clients, we we usually will help them identify three or four things they should be working on that will move the needle. But we also say we need an executive champion or sponsor over each one of those areas. And then each one of those executive champions should go. We, we encourage them to go out and recruit four or five top performers, high performers, emerging leaders and form teams to address the issue. The, that gives ownership for the issues to everybody in the in the organization. And so that's one way that a leadership team who says, you know, we can't, we don't think we can afford a robust DNI team. You know, we're talking maybe three or four resources. Then if you're not going to uh, invest, then be prepared to put your shoulder into the DNI effort and take ownership for a key area and then pull together in football language, three or four first round draft picks and uh, get busy. That's the way to do it. Absolutely, Shelton. I, I do appreciate what you're saying. You know, I think a lot of these companies that are popping with a chief diversity officer, I mean, maybe it's the thing to do. Uh, I don't know if they're doing it to check a box to say, hey, we're doing something around diversity or if they really want to impact transformative change. And I think transformative change takes everybody and it starts at the top. So thank you for, for highlighting that. So my next, my next question, Shelton, is, you know, for companies just starting their DNI journey, what's a great starting point you would recommend if they've not done anything around diversity inclusion in the past, you know, several years and they're, they don't know where to start? You know, what's a good starting point? Thank you for that. So uh, before, I, before I talk about, you know, the three or four things I think they should do, let's revisit the summer. We had a very, very tough summer in 2020. We saw the pandemic peaking. At the same time, we had the deaths of Ahmad and George and Brianna and Blake and just, the, you know, and others. Um, and then, of course, we had the most tense political season we've ever, election season we've ever seen. That created a lot of angst for employees. And that angst re resulted in them asking their organizations, where did we stand on these things? Forcing organizations to to reply and respond and take a, st a stand on things in the past they've avoided. And a lot of them rush statements out. So 
And then I, and then when those statements fell flat or they got a response that was different than they anticipated, that's when my phone rang off the hook. So, you know, I, I told them, wow, I wish you had called before you put the statement out because to have not done anything, anything um, in terms of internal or external diversity, equity, inclusion, you had to anticipate that that statement was going to be met with some backlash. So I get the calls and, and you know, you say, well, companies that are just starting, what should they do? The number one thing that we recommend to our clients is let's start with what we call at Icarus Consulting, a focused dialogue. You say, Shelton, what's a focused dialogue? It is a conversation with the CEO and his or her direct reports, closed door, and, and it's a no holds barred, candid conversation. And we ask them the following questions. Number one, you haven't done anything up until this point. So why now? Why do you want to embark? Why do you want to make your organization a little bit more diverse, equitable, and, and, um, and, and inclusive? Why? Why now? What's the motivation? And I don't let them tap dance around it. No. What? What is it? Number two, I, and we have each um, person on the executive leadership team answer this question. Is this personally important to you? And if it is, why? And oh, by the way, if it's not, have the courage to say, I can't get on board with this right now. I, or I can't get on board with it at all. Or I don't understand or I can't support it. So we want, we know that everyone has a voice. We want to create a safe environment, even at the top of the house, for everybody to share that voice and for that voice to be heard. Last question, where do you want to go? When do you want to get there? What does success look like? And of all your business priorities, where do you see this ranking? Is it is it high enough that you're willing to invest time, resources, money to get to where you want to get to? And we have a conversation. It's only 90 minutes. What we try to come out of it with is a unequivocal green light to move forward. And then two or three things that the senior leadership team is specifically going to do as a leadership team. And one of the things that's funny, we go in there in 90 minutes and people are like, oh, my God, you know, what are we going to talk about? When we usually finish with that 90 minutes, they say, hey, this is not enough. We need to come back and have another conversation because there's some things I want to I want to talk about. And so it's very focused and um, it's often followed up with uh, with another session with the leadership team. But the uh, we come out with an unequivocal commitment and a direction. And so, yeah, that's that's what we recommend. That's very insightful, Shelton. Thank you for that. I think that one of the things that, you know, we as Ronstad have done is, you know, our CEO the same, didn't want to just put out a statement. We started a program called Transcend, which is a program aimed at diverse and untapped communities. We felt like the best way to attack or impact social justice is to tackle it with education and employment and reskilling. So we're reskilling and offering that program and connecting them to to um, to paid apprenticeship and job opportunities you know, as a result of that. So I think that's, I think action is really speaks louder than words. I mean, I think a lot of people came out with a lot of bold statements, but I've seen very little action from those statements. And I think that's, I'm really glad that you have that process, you know, those those real honest and safe conversations with the CEO and, and the executive leadership team. All right. So now I'm going to pass it off to Demetria. I was going to ask um, some questions. Demetria? Thank you, Andra. And Shelton, I have to say, I've really was have just been 
trying to gather all of the nuggets of information that you've been sharing. It's been so informative to me, even having been in this space for a while. So I'd want to continue on what you just talked about as far as executive leadership and um, focusing in on conversations and why now. So in your book, Diversity Managers, Angels of Mercy or Barbarians at the Gate, you talk about the importance of CEO and executive leadership visible actions to demonstrate support of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So what are some examples of visible actions that executives can take to show support? Great. Thank you for that question. And Demetria, one of the questions that I get is, angels of mercy or barbarians at the gate? Where'd you get that from? Well, (laughs) well, because (laughs) it's a perception. Employees think that we are angels of mercy there to rescue them from you know, whatever ills that they believe they've been the victims of or, you know, whatever processes that they think have, they've come up on a short end of. Um, and then managers, see leadership, believe that we're barbarians at the gate, that we want them to do 25, 30 different new initiatives, you know, in an effort to change the culture. And you know this, Demetria and, and Audra, we're neither. We're there to help the company be successful. Period. And regardless of how healthy the company is, every company can be healthier. And our job is to probably identify those those things that's going to help the organization be healthier, which which takes me to the answer to your question. Leadership. You know, I spend 95 percent of my time talking to boards, talking to CEOs, talking to their direct reports. And I will tell you, most of them want a healthier company, but just like any person who's trying to get healthier, you, you can't ask a, a, a person to do, well, you got to go to the gym for five hours and you got to walk six miles and you got to come up with this brand new diet. A person's not going to do that. It's going to overwhelm them. So let me first talk to my diversity leaders. Diversity leaders, stop trying to get, you say that you want a seat at the table. You wanted your voice to be heard. Fine. Then talk, think and talk in business terms. Pick your one, two priorities that you that you need the senior leadership team to get behind and then and then focus on that. Stop trying to, to boil the ocean and, and fix everything overnight. That's why you, you may not be getting the support. For my CEOs and leaders out there, this is Dr. Shelton Good. And here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm only going to ask you to do one thing. I'm only going to ask you to do one thing right now. And we need you to listen. Create a safe environment for your employees who are thinking and feeling a certain kind of way these days and need to share uh, with the organization the things that they're thinking and feeling, and more importantly, how it's impacting them and their job performance. Create an environment so people can do that. And then listen. Don't listen to fix. Listen to learn. Now, if there's one Two, no more than three things that come out of these listening sessions, then fine. Find out, you know, pick one or two top performers, um, you know, go ahead and assign them to your diversity leader and take on those two or three items. But you got to listen. And right now, what people want to know is are you as vulnerable and authentic? And, and if so, can you be transparent? Let us know that you're not completely tone deaf to everything that's going on. 
and how that's impacting the business and how it's impacting employees. Now, this is hard for most CEOs. They have MBTI profiles of ENTJ, which means they're drivers. They haven't seen a problem that they can't fix. It's hard for them to just sit back and just listen and learn. And then furthermore, admit that they don't know what they don't know. So one thing, that's all I'm asking my clients to do. Uh, CEOs and leaders, just listen. And you say, well, how are you doing it? They say, well, Doc, can you help me? Oh, sure. Let's do a fireside chat. Let's, 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 you and me, do a fireside chat. Let me ask you some questions. Let people see that you're vulnerable and that you don't have all the answers and that you even may be a little bit uncomfortable, but you're willing to learn. And if we all work together, we can make the company better. That's all I'm asking leaders to do today. One thing. I really like that, Shelton. You know, especially the part about listening. And as you said, I always say to listen to hear what the other person is saying. And so do you think that the next or the biggest barriers and probably leaders not utilizing that ability to listen sort of now comes to the part where we talk about psychological safety? But what are the barriers to diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace today? Just, um, well, today. So and I'm, when I say today, I am talking about the crisis era, the era of crisis, crises. And, and I'm talking about pandemic, which has a mental, emotional, financial, and physical impact uh, to social justice. Just today, there is a headline in the New York Times that, a, um, that the CDC and other major health experts are going to declare racism a health, a public health problem. Um, so you have you had the social justice and and everything of the summer, and then of course again, the the entire election cycle. There are people that I know um, that have are currently seeking outside help, therapy, counseling, um, because of the ex- anxiety that they experienced, you know, over the whole election and the uncertainty around that. So we talk about barriers today. Barriers today are for for to me. Again, if you ask me for just one, I believe it is this big misperception that underrepresented people are expecting some sort of handout or expecting something that they don't they haven't earned or deserve. And these are organizations, leaders that have these perceptions about their employees. Uh, and, and I often have to say, that, no, 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 you, your employees, in a broader sense, communities, well, heck, let's, whether we're talking companies or communities or, or the country, underrepresented people want what everybody else wants. They want fairness. They want to be treated with respect. They want to be treated with, uh, with dignity. Um, they want the playing field to be level. And that's not asking, that's not giving them something that they haven't uh, deserved. The number one barrier is to me is leaders um, have this perception and then they lack the comfort, the confidence, and the competence to engage in courageous conversations around, um, especially, especially this concept of equity. And you know, it's true. Some of them are going to say, "I don't know what I don't know." That's not the folks I'm talking about. I'm talking about the folks that just say, I don't want to be, I don't want to engage in that conversation. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to be labeled 
as something that I'm not. That paralysis, I believe, is is a barrier that we have to remove by giving leadership all the way down to the supervisor level, the, the tools and the resources and the and the enhance their skills so that they can engage in these conversations with the um, with their work teams, which are becoming increasingly diverse. You ask me what the barrier is, we're not talking, we're not communicating. Not in a not in a courageous way, and we are not talking about the things that we need to be talking about. I um I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, the Ready team, led by Audra, did a courageous conversation chat around what is the difference between equality, equity, and justice. So reiterating what you said earlier with regards to listening, I think that leaders should take you know the work around equity seriously with the courage to listen and change when challenged. So I I wholeheartedly agree on what you said, and thanks for sharing that. My next question for you is, we know that we come across indifference or failure to acknowledge that not everyone has the same workplace experience as others. What advice do you have for diversity, equity, and inclusion leaders who are dealing with a workplace culture of indifference while trying to push forward their own diversity initiatives? Again, Thank you for that question. I have a client that's in the health that's in healthcare. They have obviously a, a, a hospital, but they also have a teaching a university. And they told me the number one thing that they are seeing is a mental an uptake in the number of people who, because of the confluence of the crises I mentioned previously, are, are seeking some help to deal with some of the, the mental health issues that they that they are experiencing. I point that out because I want to reply to your question first, breaking it up into two audiences. Let me first talk to any first frontline employee who may be listening to this podcast. If you are feeling a certain kind of way and, and, and experiencing something in your workplace, what I hear from employees all the time, well, is it just me? Am I am I you know am I crazy? Am I and I'm am I imagining things? I'm going to say to you, you're not alone. You're not crazy, and whatever you're experiencing, whether it's the result of intent or indifference, you are experiencing it. You need to talk to someone. Talk. Start with you know internally to your supervisor, your supervisor's supervisor. If you have access to EAP or or something, and and I would encourage you to to find a, a way to address whatever it is that you are thinking and feeling. For diversity leaders who know that employees are reporting through a, a number of mechanisms, whether it's the employee's concern process, the compliance process, or maybe something as benign as a annual employee engagement survey, they we are asking employees to trust us and give us feedback. We owe it to them. We owe it to them to honor the feedback by first thanking them for trusting us and giving us the feedback, the quantitative and the comments or focus groups. The second thing we need to do is say, hey, we heard you. Next, we need to say, this is what we think we heard. If we, you know, help us understand if we got it right. If 
as my son say, uh, you know, daddy, you're not feeling me. We need to ask employees, you know, are, you know, are we feeling you? You know, are we getting this? And then you need to put together a plan to address the, the top two or three things that employees are saying, you know, you got to take a look at this. What I would do and what I advise my clients to do is get some of those people that, that have given you the feedback. If you've got a, a DNI council, employee resource groups, why not? Or, or even focus groups. Get the people who are most impacted by the issues to be a part of the solution. And then communicate to people. Keep them updated on, the, on your actions. Make sure that you remind them, we are doing X because you identified X as a issue. Uh, the one thing that you shouldn't do is not do anything. I do have clients who have had a employee survey question surrounding um, promotions, hiring, developmental, career, career development, a question that basically said, you know, are we, are the people that deserve it um, getting opportunities, something like that. For I know I've got clients who have had that item rated the very lowest, the lowest, four or five years in a row without taking any actions to address it. And then they wonder why, you know, morale, employee engagement is so low. So, to, to you know, indifference, indifference, there's indifference in action, and then there's indifference in communication. In order to, to attack it, you got to do both. So that, that's what I would recommend. Thank you for that, Shelton. I have seen studies recently that talk about, as you mentioned, the um, mental health and wellness and well-being of the world through this pandemic and especially in the workplace. And I know that several organizations take steps and Ronstadt being one of them too, to ensure that they have programs in place um, for their employees to help them through this pandemic and help to create a sense of well-being for them. So I appreciate your call out to the frontline workers and to DEI practitioners with regards to mental health and well-being wellness. We all need to take care of ourselves, you know, put our oxygen mask on first, right? <laughs> Before we can help others. As a recruitment firm, we do a lot of diversity recruitment strategy work for our clients. And many organizations believe diverse talent is unavailable. We've heard that throughout this pandemic and many Fortune 500 companies have made these statements. And for some niche specialized roles, that can be true. How can diversity recruiters help better position diverse talent to hiring managers? What do you suggest are some tips they can employ? Yeah, this is one of my favorite. This is one of my very favorite subjects. And, you know, my next book, um, Beyond Inclusion, Reimagining the Future of Work, Workers in the Workplace, this is the number one thing that we highlight is because of the when we come on the other when we're fully emerged from the shadow of the crises, we have got to we've got to do do things differently. And so whereas before, you know, recruiting from places maybe we didn't recruit from may have been, you know, a best practice or a common practice, that's not going to get it. <laughs> on the other side, we're going to have to really push the envelope. We're going to have to really get creative. First of all, I wholeheartedly reject 
that there is not talent out there outside of white males. In fact, what we tell our clients and what I would tell anyone on, you know, listening to the podcast, stop it. There's there's talent out there. There's talent out there. If you look at the percentage, for an example, of uh, people that are graduating from four-year degree institutions in engineering, when you combine mechanical, industrial, uh, double E's all together, the preponderance of those graduates are going to be women and people of color. So, so the talent is there. That's let's let's stop it. Let's stop that that debate right there. So, if you find that you're not getting your fair share of it, then obviously, you know, I would say, you know, look at the your your basics in terms of how you're sourcing, how you are making sure that the talent knows that you have opportunities. But I would go, I would, I would say coming after coming, that's what everybody is doing. They, you know, everybody's got the best applicant tracking systems. Everybody's using social media. I'm going to say you want to get more creative. So I'll give you an example. When I was at MARTA, I convinced the the head of our law enforcement and MARTA is the Metropolitan Atlanta Rapid Transit Authority. It's the it's our bus systems, our rail system. And we have our own law enforcement officers that, you know, patrol and ensure safe and security in in the places where we provide service. I convinced the chief that when she says, hey, I can't keep good officers, Atlanta, Atlanta keeps poaching them, as does the cab and other surrounding places. I'm 40, 50 officers short and we're coming up on uh, the Super Bowl. What am I going to do? I says, Chief, why don't we get on a plane and go to Puerto Rico? Puerto Rico had just experienced a severe, devastating storm. I says, I bet you they have a lot of law enforcement officers that are displaced and are considering going to New York or other places. Why don't we go over there, do our testing, everything we normally do, and come back home with 30, 40, 50 um, qualified officers that just so happened to be, you know, Hispanic heritage and, and just so happened to speak Spanish just in time for the Super Bowl. Man, we went over there and uh, we, you know, we put together a nice little package for them and we came back with 61 officers. You know, I can't even tell you the cost savings in doing that versus spreading that out over two, three, four, five years, you know, and using traditional approaches. So, you ask me what recruiters are going to have to do. Recruiters, I don't want to use the cliche, think outside the box. But certainly, whatever you've been doing, you need to keep doing. But then you need to figure out, if I was king, queen for a day, if I was CEO for a day, what would I do differently? And then convince, put together a business case and convince the organization, hiring managers, whoever, to do it. We've got to reimagine the future of work workers in the workplace. We can't, we cannot go back after the crises are passed to doing things business as usual. I and thank you, Shelton. I like that. Reimagine the future of the workplace because it is going to be a totally different workplace than what we've known it to be in the past. And I think listening to your story, having people, you, your team, the chief of the MARTA police think outside the box 
as you said, but be innovative, right? To yep. be innovative in their approach to how can they find the talent that is out there. And as you said, may not have known about Marta and the great opportunities that surround that um, city. So thank you for that. Demetria, if I can give you one more, because people, people say, well, gosh, you know, I need practical, I need realistic ideas of things to do. Um, I will, I'll tell you about another client who said, I can't keep good customer service reps and, and I can't pay them $15 an hour right now. I can't. I just can't. Doc, what can I do? I went down and I put together a focus group for the client of customer service reps. I says, okay, here's the challenge. Help. What should we do? And the focus group says, look, let, give us equipment. Let us work from home. I'll take a pay cut. I'll take a 50 cent per hour pay cut. Let me work from home. The company is saying, oh, we can't do it. We can't do it. But we heard of other companies that are doing it. Why can't we do it? I went back to the client. I says, hey, let's do this. But not not only let's do it, let's figure out what's the innovative way to do it. Why can't, let's, let's make an incentive. Let's say, okay, we're going to send 50% of the people home, let them work from home. And we're going to, and you got to compete for it. You've got to have a good quality score. You've got to, you know, on all your metrics, you got to, your attendance has to be good. You know, you got to be in your seat taking calls and we're going to use metrics and we're going to take the top 50% and we're going to let them work from home and we're going to let them work from home. And as long as they are performing, you know, the people that don't perform, we're going to bring them back into the workplace physical workplace, and we're going, to keep it, we're going to keep it rotating. We then turn that into a recruiting tool that says, look, come join us. We're going to pay you a nice little wage. You know, I think it was $13, $13.50 to start. But, you know, not only can that, will that move up as your performance and everything improves, but if your performance improves, we're going to let you work from home. Man, we, they, we were able to poach experienced customer service reps from so many different companies. And we literally had a lot of people uh, where we had actually more people wanting to come to work than we had um, positions. We even did something innovative, which created a bench and paid people to actually learn and be on standby for when we needed you. You got to be creative. You got to be creative. So I just wanted to give you another practical example where there's talent. You just got to figure out how to position your organization to get your fair share. No, I appreciate you, Shelton, sharing that. That does resonate well during these times, right? Working from home and studies have shown that working from home creates more productivity, that workers are probably working 1.4 more days per month than when they were in the office. But I think managers and leaders see that the um, productivity has not decreased, it's somewhat increased. So I thank you for sharing that about that focus group for customer service. It's comfort. It's, It's supervisors and managers wanting to manage based on what's comfortable for them instead of what, what gives you the best performance and what what can be sustained, sustained results for the benefit of the company. Managers are going to have to reimagine and, and it's going to have to start with them. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to take that into um, the rest of 2021. That's going to be our new theme, Reimagine. So I'm going to take turn it back over to Audra to ask a few more questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Demetria. That's a great segment. I, I like those examples, Shelton. Very timely. So Shelton, I'm referring back to your book. There's a quote in there I really found very impactful. It says, since underrepresented groups do not have the power or influence to effect change in most large organizations, the senior leaders must recognize the critical role that white men play in organizational change. You know, I wholeheartedly agree with that statement because we need everyone at the table to make a difference, especially to move the needle for diversity and inclusion. Why do you think that white men in particular find it hard to see how important their role is in advancing diversity, equity, inclusion in the workplace? Yeah, um, and this is not a, a new phenomenon. And, and again, it's one of those topics, right? You got to have a courageous conversation about. You got to, you got to, you know, call out this issue that white males, who, for a lot of reasons, for a lot of reasons, perceive that diversity, equity, inclusion is a zero-sum effort. That those that those efforts are designed according to them, to benefit only women and people of color, and that there is nothing uh, in it uh, for them or even the organization. Um, that is a bias. That is a bias and a blind spot that we just have to help these, in, we have to help white men understand so that they can get on board with the initiatives. Now, there's something that we can do that would help. And that is to talk about the work that we do in terms of business. And this is my number one challenge to DNI leaders and HR leaders um, as, as a broader field and group of people. Let's think and talk and communicate and understand our work in terms of business. And I'm not talking about a translation. I'm talking about actually thinking, okay, the organization just came out of a pandemic or is coming out of a pandemic. What is the number one, what's the number one or two things that the company needs right now to help us be able to emerge from the crises and then begin to resume thriving on the other side of it? You have to ask that question. You can't say, oh, what initiative am I not getting support for that I need to go fight for? No. <laughs> what, what, you know, what is it? You know, you can't think that way. You can't think about our initiatives and then try to shoehorn them into the business. You got to think about what the business needs and needs in at that time and then figure out what do we do to address that? And that's when I believe we may we may get a little bit more um, support. And, and I'm talking about enthusiastic, enthusiastic support for what it is that we're, that we're trying to do. We got we to gotta think and talk in terms of the business. Let me give you, again, let me give you a quick example. I have a, a client in the energy industry, and obviously they have to deal with COVID and everything, but they are a regulated utility. Their public utility commission mandated what's called in the energy space, a demand side program. In other words, what are you doing to help people in your community who are already struggling 
lower their electric bill and or if you can't lower it, at least help them use their energy a little bit more efficiency. So, Audra, think about our, you know, mothers, parents, grandparents who maybe had a extra freezer in a very hot garage that was just soaking up energy and driving up the bill. And the only thing in that freezer was maybe some leftover, you know, turkey from Thanksgiving that they were going to use for some seasoning for some collard greens. That's just not a good use of energy. And so the company says, the, comp- the, the company had this mandate. I know a diversity leader that raised her hand and says, hey, we can help with that. If we got to go into homes and do energy audits and talk to, talk to underrepresented uh, communities about how they can efficient, more efficiently use energy, which will maybe even drive down their electric bill. I've got a Asian employee resource group. I've got a Hispanic employee resource group. I got a black. I got an LGBT. Let us train us and then let us go in and do these audits. The energy company had a mandate to do 500 in a year. They wind up doing 2,500 because a diversity leader stepped up and says, hey, we got a solution. If that's a company problem, and, and you say, that's not a diversity problem. There is no diversity issues. There are only business issues that have diversity, equity, and inclusion implications. So and that's how, you know, we come and we use these big words, diversity, belonging. And nobody, people are looking in a dictionary trying to figure out what we're talking about. You got to think what's in the best long-term interest of the organization. And so I'll stop there. That's amazing, Shelton. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, my team, you know, we are 90%, you know, of my team are client facing. You know, we're in a services industry. We help clients with diversity. We don't we only not only work on Ronstad diversity inclusion, but we also work on client specific. Demetria is one of our, you know, key strategists that helps um, support one of our large pharma clients. So yeah, I, I get what you're saying. We've, we've been tying bi- diversity to business from day one. I think at Ronstad, so I'm really proud about that. We've been our three pillars, our three strategic pillars are workplace, marketplace, and business. And business is what we do to engage our clients and impact our, our bottom line. So thank you for, for highlighting that. So Shelton, switching gears, you know, as a veteran, first and foremost, you know, I, I really want to thank you for your service to our country. I think that a lot of people say that, but I, don't, I think the best thing people can do, especially employers, is help our veterans find jobs. What are some things that, you know, your company's doing to help clients tap into that largest talent pool of our veterans and military spouse community? Yeah. So, again, thank you for, for thanking me and, and on behalf of me, two of my sons who are on active duty. We, we uh, thank you. We can't think of a, a higher honor of service than, than, than going into the military and serving the, 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 the country. What a, you know, again, I go back to my book on that, you know, hopefully a little, running a little bit behind, but my publishers assured me that it should be out by, um, by March. Beyond inclusion, reimagining the future of work, workers in the workplace. This is one of the areas that I personally, personally have seen a lot of progress in. Not only are companies, you know, I've seen companies do things like have a dedicated uh, talent acquisition person. That is their veteran strategist. I've seen companies obviously leverage their veteran-focused employee resource groups and business resource groups 
to go to job fairs and, and conferences. But the thing that I'm not sure a lot of people know is that that companies want to hire vets and the Department of Defense and the Department of Veteran Affairs want these want these folks to get jobs. And so there are a lot of resources at the federal level and maybe even in some states. But I know at the federal level, there are agencies that didn't even exist when I was on active duty that are there now. And they are designed to do one thing, help employers, you know, hire this very well-trained, well-educated, highly skilled uh, workforce. And and so I'm seeing companies uh, go to Washington, D.C. and meet with these agencies and and put together all kind of formal programs, exchange programs, uh, internships, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say to any company that wants to focus on this area, because I can't think of a pool where you can go and get um, the, uh, the diversity, and I mean that with the biggest D, gender, race, ethnicity, orientation, identity, background, different skills. Uh, again, when I was at, at MARTA, we knew that our culture and, and the type of jobs that we had, we could take a person that walked off a base and put them in a bus depot repairing buses or if they or if you wanted to drive you know and operate trains or buses well, they were just we just we knew that we had jobs that were we were always running short so between the Puerto Rico initiative and the, the veteran initiative and of course being federally regulated we found the doors were thrown wide open to us when we went to Washington DC to get help in tapping into veterans and so um, lots and lots and lots of avenues. No one today should be saying, I can't get and retain veteran talent. Absolutely, Shelton. I think that, you know, you know, as a daughter of a Vietnam veteran and a mother of a Marine Corps veteran, you know, I, I really am passionate about this. This is something that's really near and dear to my heart. I'm really proud that Ronsat is a not only a Department of Defense skill bridge provider, um, helping to train and intern transitioning military, but also a military spouse employment um, program provider as well. So the MSEP program. So really want to make sure we're impacting the whole ecosystem of veterans as well as military spouses. So so thank you for that. You know, Shelton, one of the main reasons I have such great respect for you is, and your work is that you really do surround yourself with really passionate people and with the singular purpose of elevating diversity and inclusion. What advice would you give someone that's looking to start a career in diversity that you wish someone would have given you 20 years ago when, when you began your own career in this space? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. I, let me first give a shout out to my tremendous team, the Icarus team, a, a team of superheroes, a team of, of transformers. I'm proud to say that you know, the top three ranking people after myself are all females. We have uh, a very diverse team, again, in terms of not only in, ter- not only in terms of race and gender and ethnicity, but background, skill sets. We've got HR, people that specialize in HR, talent management, sales, a salesperson. And so I'm a very, very, very good team. And, and they are, they service our clients and they bring with them a depth and breadth of experience and a way to communicate 
in a business-like way. And, and I think that's why Forbes recognized us as, as one of the top 10 trailblazers. I, I would advise, I would, I, when I got into this, um, I had no choice. I, my organization was facing um, some extensive legal pressures. And I was at, a, uh, at our customer care center. And the, the president says, hey, you are leading the most diverse organization in our entire company. You've got to be part of this change management effort. And besides, you know, I had done my dissertation on affirmative action and underrepresentation and affirmative action as a public policy to address underrepresentation. Uh, someone thought, hey, look, let's take good. Let's put them on this team. Um, what I tell people and, and my two latest members that joined my team, both of them reached out and says, hey, um, how can we how can I learn about this. And, you know, what started out as part-time internships, these people, they are now people on my team. What what I wish I knew 20 years ago and what I tell people today is if you want to be in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion, find a way to do your own work first. You know, people say, well, I don't know what unconscious bias is. Well, go out and do some research on it. Go out and take the the, the, the implicit association test. Discover what your own biases are. Read and learn, and then, and then figure out, you know, what is the one or two competencies that you think that you have that you can bring to the table that will, you know, help a company advance or accelerate their diversity and inclusion efforts. But more importantly, what's the one or two competencies that you wish you had that you don't? And then let's talk about how you're going to close those um, close those gaps. So. Um, I'm proud to say that everyone on my team has um, gone through extensive development, whether it's Al Vivian's race awareness course or Patricia Pope's course on gender or or my good friend Bill Proutman's White Males as Full Diversity Partners program. These are all immersive um, leadership development that will help you really begin to not only address organiz- um, DNI gaps in organizations, but, you know, being able to understand where your blind spots may be around um, certain issues. So that's what I would tell people. There, you can, there's, it's easier today, more today, uh, more, more so than at any time, it's easier to go out and uh, identify where you may have gaps around certain things when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, and then there's resources out there a lot of them free that can help you close those gaps. That is so true, Shelton. Thank you so much for that. Wow, I could sit here and listen to these nuggets all day, Demetri. I don't know about you, but this has been a phenomenal conversation and I'm just almost sad that it's about to end. One last question, Shelton. You know, I love to ask our guests, what do you want your legacy to be that your family remembered the most? Yeah, thank you for that because I think every day when I, I wake up, I say, wow, you know, I'm proud of one thing. I'm proud of the fact that given the last two decades, one of the things that I have, that I I want my legacy to be is that I have helped people. Um, And obviously I've gotten paid to help organizations, but at the end of the day, organizations are made up of people. And, And I can, you know, time won't allow, but I could share so many stories of people 
that um, just just reached out people I never I didn't even know that were strangers that are now you know in my inner circle. So my legacy, even it's so funny. I remember my son uh, when they come to visit and we go to you know we would go to a local store at Walmart or Target or whatever, and people would come up and start a conversation, and my sons would always say, "Daddy." Is there anybody that you don't know? Is there anybody? <laughs> is there anybody you haven't helped? All these people. I, I think about the fifty plus people who I help get postgraduate programs. I want my legacy to be that it wasn't about Shelton. It was always, what can I do to to help somebody be better? You know, how can how could I help them to be everything that they wanted to be? That's what I want. My I want my family to be proud. Certainly of all the things that I've accomplished, but I I want them to be proud of the fact that I helped people, that every day I tried to figure out what can I do today to make life a little bit better for somebody and then do whatever I can. I'm not Superman. Just try to do my little bit. Thank you so much, Shelton. Um, That was phenomenal. And I know that your legacy is already in place and intact because You've helped a lot of our listeners today, including me and Demetria, uh, on the calls with your powerful insights. So thank you again, Demetria, from our Ready Crew for another fantastic conversation. Also, I want to give a big thank you to our listeners globally. We appreciate your support. We've been downloaded in over 54 countries, and we hope that trend will continue. In the words of Ava DuVernay, diversity is not one in the room. Diversity is not two in the room. Diversity is not three in the room. True diversity is half the room. Remember, when we celebrate diversity and inclusion, we celebrate humanity. Be sure to spread the word and tag our hashtag Diversity Deep Dive podcast. Real diversity happens when everyone is actively engaged and working together for a positive change. Let's keep the conversation going. Please download more episodes of the Diversity Deep Dive podcast. Until next time, seek out ways to make a positive difference in your world, workplace, and community.